So I'd like to read a very, very old story that I think has a very, very current meaning, a very, very current application. And it relates to me specifically, so I want to share a little bit about what's on my heart and my mind. I believe it relates to New Hope specifically, so I hope we'll listen to it with ears to hear what God might be saying to our church. And I believe it speaks to the church as a whole, you know, Christianity, American Christianity, kind of this era and this stage of where God's church is at. And so I hope that'll inspire us to pray big, pray for ourselves, pray local, and pray for God's church as a whole. Um, And it fits well within this context of a communion Sunday, because after I'm done sharing, you know, reading, sharing a few points to help drive this home, make it as practical and applicable as I can, I'd like us to have a time of prayer. So I'm going to drastically limit my lengthiness of speech and try to be as concise and to the point as I can. And afterwards, I'd like to create a space here for us to pray on our own, gather in twos or threes. You can come pray up front with me. Maybe ask Danny to come forward too. I have a couple of elders up here if you'd like to pray with us. But I believe that these things should lead us to prayer. We should not talk about these things and hope we pray about them. We need to pray about them. And it's probably even more important that we pray about them together today than we talk about them, but so that we may know what to pray about. We'll read some scripture. I'll share some thoughts. And then we'll see where God leads our prayer time. We'll close our service with song right about when we usually do. So that's where we're going today. I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So we've gotten past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, your past, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, that's where you are in that section. So if you're kind of back towards the beginning of your Bibles, we're going to Nehemiah. Do I have it bookmarked? I do. I cheated. I've got it bookmarked. You have to find it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, as I said, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, it's before the book of Psalms. It's a historical book. We touched on this, and I kind of summarized both Ezra and Nehemiah together maybe a month or so ago, talking about how you know we wait for God to work, and he has all this prep and planning. And if you remember, there was like all these years and years and years of waiting, and then just weeks of action, and God completed what he was going to do. God does a lot of groundwork. He tills the soil, uh, but when he wants to move, he doesn't... Uh, He doesn't tarry. When the time is right, he just goes. And so Nehemiah is a story of God just kicking into action his people and his plan, fulfilling prophecies, all sorts of wonderful things. So we're building on that kind of introduction that we had a few weeks back, and I'm going to just read chapter one. Uh, It'll give us a little bit of the history, give us our setting, and then we'll talk for a minute about what this means for us today. So please follow along. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened that in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I, Nehemiah, was in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them, Concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble 
and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So if we stop there before we go to his response and his prayer, the setting is that the people of God had been dispersed. They had fallen away from their worship of God. They had fallen away from living for God. And so these other pagan nations came in and they destroyed, they scattered the Jewish people all around that area. They're in exile. But there was a remnant. That word remnant is a special word in Scripture that is the special title given to the small group of people that are clinging to God faithfully amidst a larger group of people that are either wishy-washy in their faith or abandoning it altogether. The Bible says God will always preserve his remnant. And so within the larger church, there are many who might say, oh, I believe in God, but it's a casual sort of thing. There are many who say, I'm Christian, but don't actually know what the Bible says or what that means. There's, there's sort of the broader category, but within that category, there is always the remnant, the few that God has preserved and that have remained loyal no matter what. You know, the ones who have not bended the knee to the other gods, hanging on to their faith. So there's a remnant in Jerusalem at this time. People have survived. People who are clinging to their faith in Yahweh. There will always be a remnant. There will always be those few that hang on even when all others are dispersed or all others fall away. So he talks about that remnant. And what this person says, Hanani says, he reports to him. You know, He's coming from Jerusalem to the capital of the Persian Empire where everything looks high and mighty and glorious. You know, you got kings here and you've got the height of the empire and the empire is owning the entire portion of the world, you know, North and Africa, um, Europe, over into Asia. They own everything. So things look good in Susa. But in Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, the people of God, the walls are broken down. And the people, the remnant, are in great trouble and shame. The kingdom of God, the city of God, and the people of God are in great trouble and shame. But there is a remnant there. And they're hanging on despite persecution. And they're hanging on despite the attacks and despite the exile. And so God ignites the heart of Nehemiah in response to that. His heart breaks. These are my people. These, this is my holy city, Nehemiah thinks. How can this be happening to the people of God? And then he recognizes, <laughs> this is what God said would happen if we didn't cling to him. This is a result of the sin in the world and the sins that we've fallen into. I need to pray that God forgives us for those sins, and despite our weakness, knows that we are his people. We are the remnant. And maybe, just maybe, for his glory, despite our weakness, he might do a work. He might do something amazing. He might restore what's been broken down. He might rebuild what's been destroyed. He might gather back what's been scattered. He might bring life to what's been killed off, because he can. So Nehemiah's response, notice, is not just kick into gear. We have him later on kicking into gear. But chapter 1 does not immediately respond with Nehemiah's 12-step plan and process for how he's going to accomplish the will of God. 
Step one is he got on his knees and he said, I'm sorry because you're a good God. And so if there's problems here, we're part of the cause. And so first thing is for us to confess and say, I'm sorry for what we've done to your great name. I'm sorry for where we've fallen short because we all fall short of the glory of God. That's scripture. We all go astray, but we've got a Jesus who calls us back, who fills us up, and who lifts us up. So it's good news, but we need to call on God to do that work despite us and to use us. So that's what Nehemiah does. He mourns and he confesses before he prays to God about what the action will look like. Let's read what his prayer is and think about this for ourselves. Nehemiah says, writes, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house, we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name, God's name, dwell there. He says, God, they are your servants, they are your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king is someone who has personal contact with the most powerful man in the world. He's in a position of opportunity. God could use Nehemiah to do something. But would he? And what would it be? And will he have favor when he talks to the king? What's God going to do? He starts with confession. Confession for himself. Confession for the people of God. And he asked God for God's great name, by God's power, for God's will and God's plans, if God would do something. Because when he looks and when he hears the report of the condition of the city of God and the people of God, the walls are all broken down. People are in great trouble and great shame. That's the report given about the state of the people of God in that day. So how does this tie to us today? I believe that that same report could have been delivered today. Someone reporting on the condition of the church, the condition of the people of God here in America, in the country in which we live, a country which is founded on God's principles, which is going so far away from it. That same report could be brought here this morning and say, let me report to you that the condition of the church, the kingdom of God, 
is that in many places the walls are broken down. And in many places, the Christians here in this country are in great trouble. They're vulnerable, and they're at risk, and they're in trouble and struggling. And in many ways, we're experiencing great shame. And in many ways, we're walking away from what God calls us to be and do. That's not every person or every situation. I don't even think it's worldwide, but I'm saying here in our church, here in the churches that we're kind of like a part of, that is what I see as well. I feel a little bit like Han and I. When I look out over what I see, I see broken down walls. I see people who look broken down rather than powerful people of God. I see a church and a kingdom of heaven here on earth that looks like it's crumbly and weakened rather than a visible example of the power of God at work for the world to just look at us and be like, wow. I think that's to our shame. And I think inadvertently, we disgrace God's name by being that kind of a church which represents him so poorly because he's just as great as he's ever been. And he wants us to be just as powerful and joyful and transformed as he's ever wanted. So the fact that it doesn't look like that is not the world's fault. The world's always going to try to knock us down. And it's not God's fault because he's always there trying to help us. It's on us. And so that's why Nehemiah goes to confession. My report on the state of the church, New Hope, is that too many parts of our walls are broken down. Too much. My personal experience with this over like the last six months has been one of God disturbing me with this fact constantly. Constantly. In the fall, as I was coming back from our summers and serve home and then some family time and kind of getting into the swing of things in the, in the fall, uh, there would be so many days where I would be up here. I like to pace. That's how I think best. So I pace back and forth. So I'm thinking about, okay, what are we going to do? Looking up a scripture, thinking about a sermon. And instead of my thoughts being so easily focused on what should be preached on Sunday or how do we address this problem or how do we plan for this event, or instead of being like that, my thoughts just kept coming back to this Simple question. What is it that we're supposed to be doing here? And what is it, God, that you're calling me to be doing? And what is it that you're calling us to be doing? Because I only, only want us to do what he wants us to do. Nothing else is going to bear any fruit. Nothing else is going to have any life. Nothing else is going to help us grow in our intimacy with the Savior. Nothing else is going to transform us other than just pursuing God wholeheartedly. And I don't know why that thought kept coming to me, but it did. And it kept becoming this like obsessive thought. And so I'm walking here trying to think about other things, and all I find is myself kneeling here praying, God, what is it that you want to say to us? And he wouldn't let me let it go. He wouldn't let me stop thinking about it. Thinking about it at home, you know, laying in bed, those thoughts that are just like repetitive thoughts. And there's not some crisis in the church, some big problem I don't think we have to resolve. It's not that sort of thing. It's not a situational thing. It's a big picture. It's looking at Jerusalem and saying, where are our walls broken down? 
What are you calling us to do? Who are you calling us to be, God? And that's been, for me, the single most preoccupying thought in my head every day since, like, September. And over time, I've been praying about this and trying to read, read scriptures, read books, talk to people, talk to mentors, find out what it is that God is trying to say. Uh, I've talked with a couple of you here and there about parts of this, talked with my wife at length, um, trying to seek after God's heart for what it means for us to serve him in this season of the church. What is it that we're supposed to be doing? What is it that we're supposed to look like? And so this morning, kind of as my report, I would like to share with you a dozen places where I see the wall crumbling. Twelve. And because it's limited time, I'm not going to preach a ten-minute sermon on all twelve. I'll give you a couple of minutes with me to just think about each one. And I would like these twelve things to be the inspiration for our prayer time afterwards. Some of these you will identify with because we're all a part of this family. So if these walls are crumbling, it is us who is either not maintaining these walls or it's us who is in some way not caring for this kingdom. But this also is a prayer for much bigger than New Hope. We are not the only church. We are a piece of God's church. We're experiencing what the church is experiencing. And in my conversations with other pastors, with people outside of New Hope, I find these themes being repeated. This is not just a New Hope thing. And so I believe God wants us to speak into, to pray into, and to seek after his will for what it looks like for his people, the condition of his church. And so that's what I want to share with you this morning. This is Nehemiah. We're going to dig more into Nehemiah over the next few weeks, and um, we'll let him speak. But on this Communion Sunday, we're here for prayer and confession and renewing our covenant I would like to challenge us to pray about these specific things. The first broken area of the wall that I see is priesthood. Priesthood. We've recreated it. We've got priesthood all over again. Jesus came and said, no longer will you call anyone teacher or rabbi. What do you call me? What do you call me? Not behind my back. What do you call me? My gifting has become my position. Anybody else here get that title? Why not? Greater priesthood. Pastor, will you pray for me? Pastor, will you teach us something on Sunday morning? Pastor, you're paid to go full-time and do ministry. I just work a regular job. It's all wrong. That's a broken-down wall because Jesus specifically said, you are all my body. Ministry is for everyone. So I'm one of whatever we have here, 70, 80, I'm one of. But somehow we've recreated the priesthood role. And we say, oh, we're in the Protestant church. We're not like the Catholic church that has priests. Oh, yeah? How are we different? How exactly is it different? You can give me the title of priest if you want. Then would it look exactly the same? Maybe. Not right? You are the church. If we rebuild a priesthood where the pastor's role is to do the ministry and the rest of us are just kind of like hoping that we find some way to live for God in a lesser way, 
I actually have the least amount of potential probably to do work because I'm in one place talking to Christians, whereas everyone else who's in a regular job actually has the opportunity to build the kingdom with people who aren't in church, using what they have in their spirit to use their gifts to bless others. So I'm like one drop in the bucket, and the church is where the power's at. So my role is a support role, a teaching role, so that we can be the church. But we've recreated priesthood in the contemporary American church. Clergy. It's back. Jesus tried to get rid of it. If we don't think about that, we're going to devalue everyone except those who are in full-time ministry. It actually makes it impossible for those of us in full-time ministry to do anything because we recognize we're just like a motor trying to like help things move forward, but we're not all the hands and feet. And so you're trying to make the motor be the wheels or, or something. It doesn't work. So would you pray with me about that? What does that look like for church? What does that look like for us? What does that look like for America if it's Christians versus pastors? It's a crumbling wall. It's a bad model. It's not what Jesus taught. The second one, crumbling wall, is about judgment. We've taken God's vision of right and wrong, his commandments, his laws, and we've used them to judge others instead of to share how amazing grace must be. When we see sin, our response as Christians is supposed to preach the gospel of grace. Wow, look at how much sin there is. That is not a point of judgment. That is an opportunity to share how great grace is. When we judge others for what they do, for what they say, when we know right and wrong and therefore we become the judge, we're specifically contradicting Scripture. I think that brings shame on the church when we become the point of judgment instead of the messengers of grace. God's the judge. So we introduce people to God, we speak his truth, but it's not our judgment. We love everyone. There but for the grace of God go I. We are every person. Every person is us. We would be in someone else's shoes if we were in someone else's shoes. And yet we've taken God's laws and we've made it our judgment instead of his. It's supposed to introduce people to God. Sin shows the need for grace. We're ambassadors of reconciliation, not judgment. And the church is too much judgment and not enough grace. Now the flip side of that coin brings us to the third point. There's a nice big word I'll give you here. It's called antinomianism. It means that we don't think that the rules apply to us anymore because we've got grace. So if on one end of the spectrum we're the most judgmental people in the world with no grace, on the other end of the spectrum we're like, Jesus died for me, it doesn't matter what I say or what I do. That's a type of people that doesn't care about holiness. That doesn't matter, doesn't bother us when we sin. We don't realize that the Bible says every time we sin, we willingly crucify Jesus all over again because we know that he died for our sins and we decide to sin. So we're saying, I'll kill you again, Jesus. That's fine, it doesn't bother us. We're not convicted by the Spirit when we sin. That brings shame on the church because we should care so much about it. And as soon as we care so much about it, we're so thankful for the grace that we have. It has to be two sides of that coin. But I think we're weak in both areas. We let ourselves go slack and we don't even, it doesn't even bother us a bit. And we judge everybody hardcore as if it was our laws and we were not subject to them ourselves. We'll all be judged for everything we've done, but Jesus will be standing beside us and saying, forgiven, 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 forgiven. The walls are weak in that area. 
We're not as good as grace as we need to be. And when we are, we're doing it wrong, and we're just using it as a get-out-of-jail-free card so we don't have to feel guilty about doing whatever we want, even when we know it's not what God wants. That's a broken-down wall in the church, and we need to pray about that. Fourth one, another area of broken-down walls, compartmentalization. We go to church instead of living for Christ. It's wrong. It's just not right. It's not what the Bible teaches. That's not in Scripture. You don't go to church. You are the church. It doesn't say get to this location at this time to hear someone speak from the Bible. It says you've been transformed. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. That's what Jesus said. Live for Jesus. Be a disciple. Walk in his footsteps. Don't go to church. Be the church. But most people say, oh, do you go to church? That's like the first question. I can't tell me how many times I've asked that question. It just becomes habit. It becomes the way you think. The problem is when we're not thinking the way the Bible says we're supposed to be thinking. Then we've got some broken down walls. And we find ourselves in great trouble. And we find ourselves in great shame. And that's when we come back to the covenant and we renew it and we pray and we confess. I'm going to fly through these because I want us to take time to pray. Next one is self-serving. I'll just say this in one sentence. We give all of our money to support our own programs and ministries instead of taking all of our money and giving it away to people who need help. We're self-serving. What do you give every week? What do you give every month? Think of that number. What if you just kept that in a piggy bank each month and at the end of the month you said, this is how much I have, who needs it? Supporting the work of a local church is supporting God's work. But if it only supports the work that's happening in one place, that's not actually what the concept of giving and sacrificial giving and tithes and offerings, all those are all about. Don't just support ourselves. Help people in need around us. We fund ourselves instead of those who have greater needs than ourselves. Hypocrisy. We don't know each other all that well sometimes. New people come to the church. You don't know who you could talk to, who you can trust. How much should I share about what's going on in my marriage? How much is too much? What will someone think if I share this about myself? And so because of that, we just don't say anything. And because we don't say anything, we just smile and look pretty because we wore nice clothes to church. And so because we're smiling and looking pretty, everybody just feels like things must be okay. And so then we're hypocrites because everything's not okay. And yet we're smiling, looking pretty, and not talking about it. So if the kind of church we have makes us into hypocrites, maybe we're not doing it right. Next one is knowledge over faith. We can easily walk away from a church service, walk away from a Bible study, and say, wow, I learned something great. When's the last time we walked away and say, my faith grew? Love someone who will teach us something. But who are our examples in living by faith? The Bible says, to your faith, add knowledge. We live by faith, not by sight. So our heart beats on faith. God is good. God loves us and he'll take us. And we learn more what that looks like. Instead, we educate ourselves to death so that we know everything there is to know about the Bible and everything there is to know about church history and everything there is to know about the historical context of everything that Jesus said, and yet we're not living by faith. That's 
not actually Christianity. <laughs> That's like a practical course on comparative religions in a local secular college. We live by faith. So our gatherings should be to inspire faith. Our purpose should be to pursue faith. And to that faith, we add knowledge, because that helps us in our faith. And when we learn, we gain supports for our faith. But it's the faith that lives alone. The knowledge comes from it and adds to it. We can't live on knowledge alone. Add that to knowledge over prayer. It's another area where our walls are crumbling. We value knowledge over prayer. I want to know what the Bible says about it instead of closing my eyes and asking God what he thinks about it. So I'm going to study instead of kneel. What you're going to get is lots of examples in Scripture of how God answered other people's prayers. So pray. And we need both knowledge and prayer, but don't put your knowledge before your prayer. And don't think that you can learn your way out of a problem. You faith your way out of a problem, and you pray your way out of a problem, because God's going to lift you out of your problem, and it's not going to happen just because you know the history of someone else who asked God for help, and he answered them. And that's just, we go to a church, we check out a church, and we like the preaching. Why? Because the preacher tells us something that we want to learn. And we go to a midweek Bible study so we can learn more about what the Bible wants to learn. It's good, but those are support structures. They're not the core. And when they become the core, the walls start to crumble, and we look over the state of the church, and we say it's not what Jesus wants it to be. We have a personal gospel instead of a evangelical gospel or a shared gospel. Our gospel is too personal. How has God saved me? Thank you. Amen. Good news is news. It's not a newspaper unless it gets published. It's not a news channel unless it's broadcast. It's not good news if you don't tell anybody. It's just like a good thought or a good feeling that you have. We've personalized the gospel so much. What has God done for me? that we're not telling anybody about it, and so it's no longer good news. There's no news. Not telling anybody. Three more. Invitational. Christian church of today has become invitational. Come to church, which we shouldn't even be saying that because you don't go to church. You live for Christ. But we say, come to church. Why? You're talking to the person right there. Why do they have to come here? What's going to happen here that can't happen there? Ah, the pastor will preach something that you can learn. Good. Glad you have that professional Christian who can say something from a pulpit that you couldn't say on a Tuesday. Not invitational. Jesus was not invitational as much as he was sending out apostles, walking himself through every town, sharing, ministering, reaching, going into people's homes, homes of all the sinful people, just to say, guess what? There's news. It's good. There's sin, and then there's grace. That's what it looked like, but that's not what it looks like. We go to church, and we hope people join us there. We're not going to people with the good news. That's invitational. That's not missional. Last two, and then we're just going to pray. I know we're getting close on time here, but I hope that as many of you as can, as want to, will just stay and pray for as long as you'd like. Our church is traditional. Not just ours, not New Hope. Every church has its traditions, but they become traditional, which means that they're for a time and a season, and then eventually traditional becomes 
antiquated. We sing hymns. Why? Because in like the 16 to 1800s, those were the songs of the church. And we grew up singing them and they spoke to us. Hymns are not sacred. The thoughts that they communicate are. And playing something on a piano versus a ukulele is no different. But if we think that hymns are the right way to sing music, or that certain church services, maybe on Sunday mornings, for example, are the right way or the right time, those are just traditions. Those aren't the point. And eventually we try to hang on to those. And they don't work quite as well, but we're still hanging on. And they're not quite as relevant, but we're still hanging on. It's about Jesus, not about our traditions. He went to a very traditional time and said, your traditions are not what it's about. Where's your heart? Live for God. So when our traditions become what we fight to preserve and hang on to, we're not living for the gospel. We're living for maintaining what's comfortable, the way we like it, the way it's always been. Not what Jesus preached. That's a crumbling wall just ready to fall over. And the last one, we live as Christians with logic over Scripture. Logic instead of Scripture. Logic trumping Scripture. The way I think makes sense. It doesn't make sense to me that this would be right. And so therefore, that's just an outdated thing. We don't go to Scripture because in my mind, that doesn't make sense. We logic our way into what our theology is going to be instead of reading the Bible and just believing it. I think this, you think this. Well, you know, this, and then we make all these sort of like adaptive, flexible doctrines based on what we think makes sense for our culture and our time instead of just saying this is what the Bible says and God's God. So that's the same. How do we apply it? How do we live it out? That'll shift. That has to. That's the tradition part of it. It can't change the Bible. can't change God's truth. It just is. It's not optional. It's not flexible. So if we're trying to reason together to find truth, it's never going to work. We read the truth and then learn how to reason based on it. These are 12 places that over these last months as I've been praying, I feel God convicting me personally have to change in my life. I confess to you that in all of these 12 areas, I have not lived up to my covenant with God. I need to grow, adapt, change, confess, get right with God, and live forward for wherever he's calling me. On behalf of new hope, I know we as a church have not lived up to these 12 things the way we need to. Individually, for each of you, I can speak for you on behalf of you as God's people. We need to be all these 12. And so any one of these things that you say, I don't think I'm there yet. Well, praise God for failures and for incomplete people that God's working on. But don't settle and don't stop. We have to head towards these things. And for the church, for the kingdom, the state of Christ's people, we're too much like these failures and not enough like the solutions to them. And so I would just like to invite you right now to bow and pray. If God puts someone on your heart that's in this room and you feel like you want to pray with them, huddle up. (laughs) Pray out loud. Come forward. Kneel at the altar. Come forward and pray with Danny or myself up here. Um, Pray by yourself. Kneel. Raise your hands. Praise the Lord. Whatever you need to do. But please join me in a re-covenanting of ourself to God for what we're supposed to be, not just what we've ended up being. I invite you to join us in prayer.